0: Welcome to Lights, Camera Author. I'm Jim Juno. During the early Hollywood sound era, studio director George Cukor produced nearly 50 films in as many years, famously winning the Best Director Oscar at the 1964 Academy Awards for the movie My Fair Lady. His collaborations with so-called difficult actresses such as Catherine Hepburn, Judy Garland, and Marilyn Monroe unsettled producers even as his ticket sales lined their pockets. Fired from Gone with the Wind for giving Vivian Lee more screen time than Clark Gable, Cukor quickly earned a double-sided reputation as a woman's director. And while the label celebrated his ability to help actresses deliver their best performances, the epithet also branded the gay director as suitable only for work on female-centered movies, such as melodramas and romantic comedies. Desperate for success after a failed drag film nearly ended his career, Cukor swore to work within Hollywood's constraints. Elise Ray Helvert is a professor of English, former director of women's and gender studies, and is current director of Jewish and Holocaust studies at Middle Tennessee State University. Her new book, called What Price Hollywood? Gender and Sex in the Films of George Cukor, finds that QCOR continued to explore gender and sexuality on screen. Drawing on a broad array of theoretical lenses, Elise Ray Helford examines how QCorps award-winning films, which include My Fair Lady and The Philadelphia Story, as well as his lesser-known films, which engage Hollywood masculinity and gender performativity through camp, drag, and mixed genres. So let's join the conversation now. It, Doctor Elise Ray Helford. Welcome to the show. Your new book is called What Price Hollywood? It is. Yes, the gender and gender and sex in the films of George Cukor. Now, for those well, of you, awesome. for those of you who are unfamiliar with George Cukor, all you have to think of are some of the most classic films. Uh, I guess most likely starring Catherine Hepburn. And Audrey Hepburn with the Philadelphia story. I'm sorry, Scarlet, uh, Sylvia Scarlett and um, *and My Fair Lady. Yes. Now, yes,
1: Kikor was famous for working with what were called difficult actresses. And although Audrey Hepburn was not one of them, uh, Catherine Hepburn definitely was. Women who stood out from the past, who did directed 10 films with Catherine Hepburn in the
0: 10 films. I mean, that, and he worked with her at a time when nobody else wanted to work with her. She was box office poison, wasn't she?
1: She was. When she first started out, she was just fine. The first film she did was uh, with uh, John Barrymore, A Bill of Divorcement, where she played his daughter and other over her own independence at the end of the film. So it was a real melodrama. And everyone thought that was fine. It was a quirky kind of offbeat role. But yeah. soon after, they found that the studio said basically if she was in a film that was a success, that was fine. Uh, but she didn't make films successful through her star persona. So when there were some films that, including Sylvia Scarlett, where she's in drag, Right for that whole film, or most of it. Um, then they started saying, okay, now she's actually hurting us. So it took a while for her to come back from that, and a lot of that had to do, I have a chapter in the book that deals directly with that, a chapter that is um, collaboration and chastisement, Cukor directs Hepburn, and it's about several of the films in which he directs her into roles in which Stop it, he didn't get to come up as she's, too aggressive and gets a comeuppance and those comeuppance films including okay. uh when she experiences that and the other one is um, Adam's Rib with um, Spencer Tracy and when she gets that comeuppance it lets the audience feel like okay she knows she was wrong and they kind of linked it over to her star persona and then she started having success again, particularly when she was team to do films with Spencer Tracy, rather than playing lead roles or glamorous
0: roles. Now, you broke up a little bit there, but you mentioned Philadelphia Story. And that was and that was really? that was done. That was her comeback uh, film. And yeah. she okay. insisted on. She plays Q- somewhat,
1: yeah, go ahead.
0: I'm I'm sorry, did she insist on QCOR?
1: Yes. QCOR was chosen by Hepburn and a number of other women for his ability, they felt, to work with women. He was strong in not feeling that the women had to be toned down, uh, directed towards what visually as soft folk down. He didn't mind working with um, women who made their own demands or had strong acting personalities. Joan Crawford is another woman he directed several films with where he let her be her, although he also felt he had to tame the degree to which she played diva in some of her films So he would try to bring her down first more. And um, it made for great success for him, but it also brought the moniker of women's director, which people had a good working with women, but also he shouldn't be working with men. And that is linked to a homophobic element in the moniker because QCOR was gay and he had several run-ins with actors or those who spoke behind his back, who felt that his being Jew, mm-hmm. Axel, less than a man. So, uh, anti-Semitism and homophobia kind of couple
0: there. The most famous uh, run-in, uh, the most famous run-in that I can recall between uh, between Cucor and an actor, I imagine, would be uh, with Clark Gable because Gable yes. insisted that he be replaced as director on Gone with the Wind.
1: That was his biggest... He had two really big regrets um, after Ga- Gone with the Wind. And with some of the scenes, like...
0: And,
1: uh, that's uh, directed by core and several other big scenes in the film. But or uh, I'm sorry, Gable, who was a big star at the time, said he's throwing the film to Vivian Lynn, And it's... Vivian Leigh and Scarlett is not the center of the film. It's certainly not Rack that is the heart of that film.
0: But Vivian Leigh is the uh, is the heart of the film.
1: She uh, replaced Euphoria.
0: But wouldn't you say Vivian Leigh? We yeah, have, who
1: played Scarlett. Yeah. She worked very well with core He wanted to work with her. Uh, he loved British actors, and so he loved Vivian Lee and he loved uh, Laurence Olivier. And he get to work with Olivier until 1975 for a TV film opposite Catherine Hepburn called uh, Love Among the Ruins. And in that film, the two of them, as um, actors of a certain age, uh, and, it, and it won awards and that kind of thing. But uh, he did never get to work with Vivien Lee again. Although she was over at his house, like many other um, classy British actors and the like of the day, he would have Sunday dinner parties. Mm-hmm.
0: We have a we have a really Cold
1: bad across town. Having uh,
0: mm-hmm. we, we have a really bad connection. You keep breaking up on me. So if I ask you to repeat something, it's mm-hmm. only because it's only because. Um, you've, you've broken off. Um, I, I let me, hmm. hang on. I'm going to
1: better when I'm like this. Is yes. It better.
0: Yes. Much better. Mm-hmm.
1: Okay. Okay. If you want to start again, you can ask me the questions. I've done no. a lot of theaters. So I'll be happy. To
0: ask <laughs> oh no, that's okay. We'll keep going. Whatever as, you decide. Yeah. As long as we, we can keep okay. going. Um, now the, uh, he got his start right away with one of the most, uh, how would you How would you describe Tallulah Bankhead?
1: Oh, I, she's another—I don't know—a dynamo. She's another uh, very determined, you know, powerful actress uh, that he got to work with. Yes, very early on in this.
0: The movie was Tarnished Lady in 1931, and that was his first movie. That's kind, of, that's kind of like throwing a, well, baptism by fire, I, I would imagine, working with Tallulah Bankhead in your first movie.
1: Uh, he, so, for which film did you say?
0: Tarnished Lady.
1: Yes, right, right, right. Um, so, Hugo didn't seem to get easily intimidated by actors and actresses. He always felt his job was that of kind of bringing the best performance out of an actor. So in addition to the woman's director, nicknamed ben, he was also called an actor's director. And his goal, so in a film like that, but all the way until, say, Judy Garland, a star is born in the 50s, he wanted to get the very best, deepest performance out of an actor that he could, whether it was drama or comedy. And so he didn't seem to get very intimidated easily to... Uh, Felt that his goal was to be as successful as he could. With it demanded of, well, so he did. He did that film, and he did um, films with Constance Bennett, who was really big in his early films, and Hat fun, who he felt he had molded into the actress that she became. And I would think that she would be uh, another difficult actress to work with.
0: Now, we're talking about Katherine Hepburn. I mean, he worked with both both Hepburns, Audrey and Katherine, but, but yes. I'm yeah,
1: he only worked with, he worked with Audrey Hepburn for My Fair Lady, which is right. what he won the Academy Award for, although people felt he should have won it for a Philadelphia story. Um, and I don't think she was at all difficult to work with for no, him. No, um, no. I think the only competition was having her voice dubbed mostly when she knew it and for and you know, she wasn't happy with that. But she didn't blame that on him.
0: <laughs> now you, you use the term uh in the, when you're speaking about the ben. the uh, Jewish angle, um and I, I, I if I mispronounce this I apologise.
1: Is Adelkite? I can't you, Oh yeah. Sorry you've been breaking up, but yeah. Yeah, yeah I I grabbed Edelkite from Daniel Boyering. There's a wonderful book about Jewish masculinity, and that you can find an alternative to the wasp or white Anglo Saxon Protestant male masculine type that you seem after. So we can say Clark Dillon, no um, Rock Hunter, or we can say, um, I don't know. There, there are you know, your major male stars of the time. Even, you know, Spencer Tracy has some of that machismo in him. Um, but that and he wasn't, he wasn't. Modesty, mm-hmm. But
0: but he himself, a two core,
1: core. I think Q core. He could direct those types. Although those are the ones. One of the the critiques that I've heard that offended me most was when he was working on a film about the partition of India. That's lesser known. It was his epic film. He actually lived outside the U.S. to do it. Um, but, Bawani Junction, in that film he worked with Stuart Granger, and Stuart Granger calls him like, I'm not gonna take directing advice from that little effeminate homosexual, those kinds of things, and was very... He worked with from um, Carrie Grant and Jimmy Stewart uh, to Spencer Tracy. They won awards when they worked with him, and they found him an enjoyable director, even if for Spencer Tracy he didn't really want direction, he knew where Q was. And I think because of that, there are moments when, you know, I ask a question that is the title of a film by Q and also is the title of the book. Where, what I, price Hollywood? Mm-hmm. Or have to sell out alternative versions of gender, like you see in. Sylvia Scarlet, where you have drag in the film. Um, and so he had a film like Holiday, which just folks haven't seen it, if they liked um, Philadelphia story and they like something that's a little gentler in some ways, Katherine uh, Hepburn and Cary Grant are also in uh, uh, the film from 38, in mm-hmm. which Lou Ayers plays uh, an alcoholic brother who seems to find Cary Grant's working class boy made good to find him as desirable as his sisters do. And there's this line where he's drunk and Catherine Hepburn's character says he's a great guy and uh, Lou Air says yeah, great, isn't he? And there's this wistful note there that suggests a alternative. Yeah. Uh, a character that's playing with non-straight identity and at least suggests something it says, to be a real man, you don't have to be macho. So if we compare that to something like another of famous film born yesterday from 1950.
0: Well, you even have a chapter uh, called Masculinity uh-huh. and the Man Who Drinks. And that is basically right. the stereotypical real man, uh, mas- masculine man, <laughs> you know, and... Who uh, who likes to go out and have a drink and a woman on each arm and things of that nature, but this wasn't. Yeah, and you know,
1: he, sh- he shows their vulnerable side. Yeah.
0: Now you in um, your in, go ahead. I'm sorry.
1: Uh, you know, Ned in Holiday is one of those who drinks, but Cary uh, Grant drinks, in the Philadelphia Story and. Um, Dinner at Eight, another earlier film. Oh, yeah. Uh, with many stars of the day. John Barrymore plays a washed up version of himself.
0: That's right.
1: And he hadn't gotten quite there. To Court denied vehemently that he was trying to make him play. that. well, this man was a hockey. John Barrymore was not a hockey. He, he loved the family, looked up to them.
0: Of course. Now, now in this your, in your high book. High
1: class ideals.
0: In your book, you. Uh, mm-hmm you um, say Kukor always battled not just his uh, not just his homosexuality uh, being discovered he was closeted during the during the time of when he was in Hollywood but he not only battled that but he also battled not being uh, well not being attractive is what he feel is what he felt yeah
1: Um. so Kukor was out like it was a it was a secret it was an open secret it was in Hollywood and there was Yeah, it was big. So Paparazzi running around to find out if he was gay or not, but, you know, people knew. Uh, Cukor, from what I have read in his autobiographies, I'm sorry, biographies, never um, really had a long-term partner. He had a lot of affairs, and he liked Hollywood's handsome young men. He would give them big parts in films. They would be introduced to him. And so, you know, it, it... He bought into, you can't be gay, so to speak. You can have these illicit affairs, but you're not going to have a partner that people will know, that kind of thing. Or he just wasn't invested in that. But he was invested in fitting into Hollywood. In front of the screen, Hollywood is this place where everyone is supposed to be beautiful with quotation marks around it.
0: When he was... um,
1: Faces look a certain way, and if they don't... mm
0: -hmm. Okay, um, no, I was just going to say that, um, you know, when when he, uh, by the time he worked with uh, Judy Garland in A Star is Born, um, there was a lot of things in that movie that that reflected his own life, wasn't there?
1: Sure. Between, Between Cucor and Judy Garland who, of course, had scoliosis, so she had these rods in the back of her dresses, and she was told to hold still all the time. It <laughs> requires a lot of movement of the body and an opening of the chest when she sings. Um, uh, and So for her, there was so much constraint, and the film even deals with that. But for Qcore, he was fat when he was young. He did lose weight and keep it off. I don't know... At what cost, in terms of his how he felt about himself? But he had very he had curly hair and he had fleshy lips, and there seems to be a linking. It's not made uh, terribly overt, but that he didn't he didn't uh, look the way he wanted to. He didn't look like the wasp that was Hollywood's ideal. So even as he's playing with gender, and even. Mm. Uh, literally or metaphorically in some of his films. Um, like in Born Yesterday where Judy Holliday plays the kind of loudmouth New York woman that, that you can link with New Yorkishness. Um, even as he's playing with those things in his films, they're not the centerpiece of a film. He's still dealing with these actors that represent the Hollywood ideal and sure, that has to wear on your uh, self-esteem, even though
0: he's behind the scenes. You know, I always thought that the James Mason character was was really—I mean, that was that was a lot of of what uh, Corps was going through in his own life. I mean, I mean, you talked about the drinking—that um, was excess with that film, wasn't it? it? It's
1: definitely another alcoholic character. He has the comedy characters like mm-hmm. Cary Grant. In the Philadelphia story, Jimmy Stewart, where everybody gets drunk to see another side of themselves, what was Cary Grant blames, <laughs> And she said, well, it was your problem. And he said, well, you married me, so you took it on with me, and you did not help me. And I think that's part of that thing of blame Catherine Hepburn so that when she emerges at the end of the film and remarries, mm-hmm. she takes the back and so her box office poison label, goes away at the same time because she's been told. But when you're talking about A Star is Born, that um, the film had already been... I and mean, Cucco was asked to direct the original version, but he opted not to because he had directed the film. Rhett Price Hollywood, which is kind of a non-musical version of that uh, in the early 30s. And so he didn't want to do it. But when the opportunity came, that comes so very much about Juicy Carla. Uh, that's the most tragic alcoholic I think he has in his film. Um, uh, you know, you mm-hmm. feel terribly for him. Uh, and court even says there's a scene where they meet where James Mason's character is in a rehab kind of home for alcoholics and he said that's based on a story that John Barrymore told him about his own experiences wow. so he kind of used these things together throughout his career making 50 films across 50 years basically
0: now tell me a little bit about, about um, we've talked about his personal life we've talked about his movies but what made you decide to get to do a book on on the uh, George Q Corps.
1: This was a project that took me many years because um, my initial publications, my other books, uh, edited collections, and, and academic articles mostly dealt with science fiction and fantasy and some literature. Mm-hmm. And I was very into that. And I suddenly realized that um, the film was more interesting to me than the TV, and that theories and ways of looking at film, I've been, you know, since teenage years, been a feminist, and that feminist approaches to film really interested me. So I wrote on um, some films in the 70s. I wrote on um, the Tetford Law, tropes and things like that. And then I said, why don't I look back? Because... A lot of my young experiences, um, especially with my father, who loved TV and film and old films, uh, we would watch a lot of this stuff together, and the films were like those of Q-Corp. Um I, I watched, um, he, he didn't direct these, but one of my first loves was the Fred and Ginger movie. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. mm And then I started getting into realizing that my best friend Kate and I probably have a lot but we live miles and miles and we only see each other you know every a couple of years we watched Holiday five times together and I realized how much I love that film and I looked into it and then I started studying film noir and I thought okay that leaves QCOR out of it but in fact QCOR directed four films that have noir elements to them A Double Life right. with Ronald Colvin that he won the Academy Award for where he plays Othello so much that he becomes Othello. It's got real problems. But it um, uh, A Woman's Face with Joan Crawford and I started seeing all these connections to things I was interested in and I've done a lot of community theater in my life and so I've done musicals. I played Henry Higgins' mother with a big white wig on top of my head in a production of My Fair Lady and then realized that's George Kinkler too and somehow things... Kept connecting to it, and I started writing individual articles or case studies—I would call them—of groups, little clusters of films that featured alcoholics or alternative men in this concept of noble, of, a, of an honorable but not particularly macho Jewish male or alcoholics. I started seeing how many, men, and I started filling in gaps because the users. I think oh, he filmed a lot of film. <laughs> and I started seeing things that I didn't realize he directed two films. Joan Crawford, uh, the other one being Susan and God, which was a flop. Right. Um, but it's a, an interesting film in any case. Um, and I started watching some of the very early ones when I could get hold of them, like Girls About Town, which is about two gold digging women. Amazing. Well. So those are pre-Code films, like the Toluva Bankhead film you mentioned. And so you get to see this development, and then what happens as he gets older? And he tries to direct the Chapman Report, which is about women's sexuality. Uh, like the Kinsey Report. And it's a, it's a mess of... <laughs> There's Shelley Winters, who got her, him in 47 in a double wife. She began in 64 playing... The bored housewife who's having an affair. So they all start. A lot of it started connecting for me. And as I pieced together the chapters, I realized I didn't have one coherent narrative. So it's not a biography. It's studies of groups of films. Look at—he directed four musicals, but hated musicals. He never directed wow. violent films because he hated violence in films. He said it was a cheap way to entertain the audience. So those kinds of things all connect. I said a lot of it had to do with gender, as well as race, race and ethnicity, Uh, and it became a pleasure project, which I can't tell you how gratifying that is. I enjoy writing it, (laughs) and that that, uh, you know, like I told you before we started um, the podcast, I just got my copies of the books, so they'll be sending them out soon.
0: Oh, fantastic. That kind of
1: thing, and I I hope it does well.
0: (laughs) I'm sure it will. Well, I tell you what, the author's name is Elise Ray Helford. The book is What Price? Hollywood, Gender, and Sex in the Films of George Cukor. And it's published by the University Press of Kentucky. So, Dr. Helford, thanks again for being on the show today.
1: Thanks so much for having me. I really enjoyed it.
0: You can find more information about the book *What Price Hollywood: Gender and Sex in the Films of George Cukor* at the website kentuckypress.com. Until next time, for lights, camera, author, I'm Jim Juno.